Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning again. Again, thank you guys for being here. Welcome to those who are online live and those who will be watching later. Uh, Thank you for spending this time with us. We are going to pause and pray before we get started again. I hope you guys are able to benefit from this time that we are together or the time that you're watching that will be helpful for you. But let's pray. Father, we are grateful for so many things, and Lord, in so many ways, you are connected to the good things that we have. You provide the the food that we are able to enjoy, the air we can breathe, the sun we enjoy, even the cool weather, the rain, uh, the families that we are part of and love. You are so intertwined in all these areas of life. And we want to express gratitude and acknowledgement that you are there. I pray that once again we will allow our minds to make room for who you are in spite of maybe even how we have thought of you in the past. May we make room for you to be bigger. May we allow our imaginations to be the fertile ground where you are able to grow. Thank you for this time. May you again work within each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Randy. Good morning, everyone. Yes, give it up for Randy. I just want you guys to know, if you didn't know, I I got a picture today. And it says, Sam, this is from Bella. She says, you are the best. There it is. That's it. Hi there. So in case you guys were wondering who's the best, now you know. Yeah, man. You got the. You were the best two days ago. I got the best this morning. Okay. So let's take care of some business here. First of all, we had a great time for our potluck. Yeah, thank you guys for coming. The food was amazing. Turkey came out okay. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't disappointed with it. I think I can do better. So thank you guys for letting me experiment on you. No one got sick, so I'm really happy about that. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and so we're excited to continue doing that. Um, there are things that are still happening that I, I don't want to forget. Uh, with what's happening in Haiti and the needs that are there. Again, you can go to forareason.org 
and contribute money that will go to supply food for the families of the children who've been attending school and the teachers who are unable to get their just daily necessities without our help. And that is something that is ongoing, so I want to mention it. I'll probably make some more notices about that as time goes on. And also, we have done this for many years, and we're going to start a little bit early, where we've done something called Advent Conspiracy, where we want to push against the commercialism of the holiday of Christmas and just say that Christmas can still change the world. And this year, what we are doing is partnering with Foothill Family Shelter. And thank you, by the way, to everyone who contributed for the gift boxes that we put together. Um, They were very happy about that. And as uh, Bree took the gift boxes there, they let us know that there is now the need for stockings for the children. And originally we talked about, well, maybe we can do 25. And we thought, well, that would be a lot, you know, pretty good for us. And they said, well, we only have 31 kids. And so Bree said, we'll do it. And so we're going to take on that task for providing stockings, Christmas stockings for 31 children. And the cost is going to be about $35 to $40. And what we're going to have next week is a list of the children, their name, uh, their age and gender, so that we can appropriately give the gifts to those kids. If you're not wanting to go shopping because you just don't do that, um, you can contribute. <laughs> That's me. I, you, I see that hand. Um, you can give money, and we will take care of that. And so I'm letting you guys know right now that we are committing to 31 stockings. I forget how much it is. You can do the math um, for the children that Foothill Family Shelter uh, takes care of right now. And so that is going to be how we step into, again, this holiday season, acknowledging that it is more blessed to give than receive. And gosh, I don't know how much money uh, this year is going to be spent in Christmas, but it's in the billions. It's crazy. It's just crazy. Almost as much as was spent on advertising for the midterm election. But anyway, I digress. Um, Also, thank you guys for contributing to Keep Genesis here. Again, your tithes and offerings um, help us. So thank you again. And <laughs> there it is on the, on the screen you can see there. So today we're going to continue in Exodus 15. But first I want to step back and ask a question. Do you have, and I asked this question earlier from some who were here, do you have an early memory of God, maybe as a child or when you first kind of was introduced to faith, maybe in the Catholic church, again, Mormon church, I, you know, Randy shared that his grandmother used to pray for him and that was kind of his introduction, you know, to, to God was that prayer that she would have with him that he just started developing, you know, Rick shared his introduction was the trick, chick tracks of God throwing people into hell. So maybe it was that, right? <laughs> yeah. You've got the the spectrum, you know, going on. And and I think a lot of us maybe have a memory of that introduction to what faith is like. I remember, and it's interesting because my mom actually reminded me of this event. 
when I was probably about five or six years old, I was watching TV, and it was one of those little black and white TVs back in the day, and I was probably sitting three feet from it because that's what we did back then. And it was some TV show, probably like a Hallmark show or something, and I don't remember much about the show, but after the show, I asked my mom, do we believe in God? Because the show was kind of about that. And she's like, well, I don't know. It's kind of your choice. That's where my mom was at. And I said, I think it's good to believe in God. And she reminded me of that. And that was kind of my introduction as some TV show. is probably really cheesy. If I, I saw it today, I'd probably be embarrassed that I responded in such a, a way. But at that time, I thought, it's a good thing to believe in God. And, and that was kind of one of my early memories of thinking about God. In Psalm 19, starting at verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the world. God is, according to the psalmist here, and I think this is so insightful, is always speaking, is always proclaiming, is always communicating without words, but through creation itself. There is speech coming out that we are receiving and then having to interpret it. And our image of God increases as we experience and learn more. As we start to see life taking place, we have to interpret it and maybe reimagine what God is saying. Now, last week, we kind of covered the crossing of the Red Sea in chapters 13 and 14, well, 12 to 14, and it was presented in kind of a prose style where there were sentences, and this week in chapter 15, it is done in poetry. And it's interesting because chapter 15 is one of the oldest sections of the Hebrew scripture, that and Judges chapter five. And we know this because of the language that's used that it's written in. It would be as if someone was writing in Elizabethan language and you would say, oh, that's coming from this time. That's how they know the date of this. And it's so you've got these, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea that's written in the prose. And then you have this older version written in poetry. And again, the editors put them together because they're telling the story. But again, it's two different traditions. And it's being conveyed in a different style. And the reason it is here is because it is helping us to see both of these traditions and to give more understanding of how people looked at this story. And there's parts of this song that are just incredibly beautiful, but there are also a lot of parts that are incredibly violent. And what I want to do is step into an awareness of that, and I think we need to talk about the violence that shows up here and in other places in the scriptures. 
You know, those of us with kids probably remember at some point our kids coming home and saying, why did God kill everybody? And it's Genesis chapter 6. It's a flood or something along that line. Maybe your kids didn't. But my kids had some questions, especially my daughter, as I recall. She would say, why did God do that? And we are at one of these places where I think those questions come up. So chapter 15 of Exodus, starting at verse 1. And make a mental note, maybe, of where things seem a little violent to you. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The name, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's chariots and his army. He has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers, he drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them by the power of your arm. They will be as still as a stone until the people pass by. Lord, until the people you brought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Now, in this ancient poem, Yahweh is depicted as a violent warrior. And you've probably noticed a lot of these things, how both horse and driver were hurled into the sea. Even the horses, right? And the people are going to tremble. They're going to, to shake. They're going to be seized with fear and dread by the power of your arm. And it's important, again, to remind ourselves that this is an ancient book. And at the time that this is being penned, they are living in a very tribal society where you either 
kill to survive or be killed and conquered. And whoever wins the battle, their God is the strongest. We saw in chapter 12, verse 12, how he has devastated the gods of Egypt. Even here in verse 11, it says, who among the gods is like you, Lord? So there is this comparison of gods, and and we've touched on it before, that here in the early stages of Israel, they were not monotheistic as we would think, but monolatry is the word that's used where they believed in many gods, but they only worshiped the one. And to see which God is strongest, it depends on who wins. If they win, their God was stronger. If we win, our God is stronger. And this was how they saw if God was with them or not. And you think about the early narrative of the scriptures And we're starting even at the book of Genesis where God is creating and everything is good and everything is good. It only takes six chapters until he kills everybody. He wipes out the earth with a flood. And it was their way of explaining an event that was cataclysmic. God must have been upset because look what happened to all these people. It's how they saw the world. It's how they interpreted things. Their God is a warrior because that's what they needed. That's the world that they lived in. That's how they saw it. That's how they understood. That's how it spoke to them at that time. And you see, people will often say, as you start reading the scripture and you you think about how things are seen differently now that you're maybe an adult from when you were a child and you start to express things different. I've often heard that, well, you shouldn't judge who God is based on your experience. But I don't know what else I have. We all judge based on our experience. We all express the things that have happened to us by the understanding we have in the framework that we're living in. And I don't think it's wrong. I think the scripture itself models this. As we see people have new experiences, new encounters with God, and there's a new expression of who God is. Does God change? No, our our experiences do. Our understanding does. Our insight grows. And so our expression of who God is grows as well. And so we start to see things like here in Exodus where there are many gods and God is greater than these many gods to the prophets that say, are there any gods? I don't know of any until you get to the New Testament where, no, we only believe in the one God. It wasn't that God was changing and now he's just one. It's just how they saw the world began to change their understanding of who God is. And so the expression we have written down here begins to change as well. And, and that happens in a number of ways, even in this area of how God deals with, quote, the enemy. Here's an example. In the book of Nahum, we have a prophet declaring judgment on 
the Assyrians. And in chapter 2, specifically on the capital city of Nineveh. And so in Nahum chapter 2, verse 7, it says, it is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Down in verse 13, it says, I, this is God, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. This is a a pronouncement of judgment. And in about 612 BCE, we know that Nineveh, the capital, fell. And so we see these things taking place and we see here the prophet is praising God because of the judgment befalling their enemy, the Assyrians, and this great city Nineveh that came to ruin. Now, fast forward hundreds of years to the book of Jonah. This is after Nahum, and the the book of Jonah is a parable And it's telling a different story. It's about who's an insider and who's an outsider to the God of the universe. The book of Jonah reimagines God after the Jewish people also were taken into captivity by the Babylonians and brought into exile. And as they are living now in this place of exile... They are having to converse with other people around them. Their neighbors, who are also people who have been enslaved. Or maybe other Babylonians. And and you can imagine the conversations, at least I can. Hey, honey, have you met the Babylonians next door? They're pretty nice. They want to invite us over to dinner. They want to have a play date with the kids, right? Right? And husband's got a smoker and they've got some good beer. I, I think it might be good. You know, they're nice people. And all of a sudden, the people who you thought were your enemies are your neighbors. And you start to think, well, if they were born where I was born, they would see themselves as the children of God. And if I was born where they were born, I would see myself in the light that they see themselves. Is God constrained by territory? Is God only the God of the people who were born in this region? Or is he also the God of the people who were born over here? And so as they return from exile, the book of Jonah is penned and we see a different outlook on God's concern for the people of Nineveh. In chapter 4 of Jonah, verse 11, says, And should I, again the Lord, not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? I like that he includes the animals. This is the same expression of who God is, but in a different voice. Do you pick that up? 
man, we're going to get you, Assyrians. It's good that you're getting wiped out. You know what? Should I not care for these people who don't know the right hand for them? Why is there a different expression of what God is saying? Because there is a different experience that they had that has now made them think in a broader sense that is now stepping into the lives of these people who they formerly saw as enemies and now are seeing them in the same situation that they see themselves in. Did God change? Their understanding changed. Their experience changed. And so the expression we have in Scripture changed. We see that also in the book of Job. The book of Job, again, uh, it's an older book. It reimagines God, right? And we know the story. We're familiar with it. Job, he's blessed. He has wealth. He has family. He's just prospering all these great things. And then calamity after calamity happens to him. And he's left destitute. And he's there just in boils. He's miserable. His family has died. He's lost all his wealth. And then his friends come And I think the most beautiful part of Job is when his friends sit with him just for days and don't say anything. I think the book should have ended right there and it would have been like a lesson to all of us, at least a lesson to me, right? Just just go and shut up, right? Just go be with them, sit with them. You don't have to say anything, but then they open their mouth and they say, you know, Job, you were doing so good. You were blessed by God. What'd you do? against God that made this happen. Job says, I didn't do anything. His friend said, no, you did. And Job says, no, I didn't. His friend says, yeah, you did. And Job says, no, I didn't. And his friend said, yeah, you did. For 36 chapters, there's this back and forth of, yeah, no, yeah, no. And it's this transactionary way of thinking that The reason this is happening is because you did something that made God mad because otherwise this would not happen. And it just goes on back and forth and back and forth. And then there's this beautiful place where God enters the conversation and he says to Job's friends, my anger is kindled against you because you have spoken wrong. And Job was right. That whole idea of transaction between what I do and what God blesses is just dealt with. And that idea of transaction we see through much of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy and Joshua, we see this. Yeah, if you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do this, it's going to be a curse. There is this transactional way of thinking. Then Job comes along and it says, what if that's not always the case? What if sometimes bad things just happen even to good people for no reason? See, it's reimagining what God is like. And fast forward now to the gospel. And what is the gospel if not really a large reimagination of the God of the Old Testament? Now, it's not dismissing the God of the old, just reimagining the God of the old the same way that they have been doing all along that we've just looked at. And I'm not making this up. I mean, think about the things that were important in the Old Testament. Think about the land. 
God promised Abraham, this land is yours. It's an inheritance forever. For your generation and all generations, as long as you're doing good, this land is yours. If you don't good, I'm going to take it away. But if you do good again, I'll give it back to you. It's all about this land. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. What about the land? We've been wanting this land and now what's going on? What about the temple? This is the dwelling place of God. This is where the glory of God came down. This is where they interacted with God. There was the holies of holies where only the high priest could go into. And then Jesus says, my body is the temple. I tear down this temple in three days, I will rise it up. And he was speaking in the temple of his body. Paul takes it further. And Corinthians, and he says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? To the Corinthians. The Corinthian church was a screwed up church. It was messed up, right? I mean, they're a loser church. And they're the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's reimagining what the temple means. It's reimagining who God is in relationship to to humanity, to its creation. It's a radical shift on the way God communes with humanity. And then there's the law. The law is central to the Torah and so much of the Old Testament. It's what defined the children of Abraham from the other nations. And then Paul comes along and he pushes the law to the side. He doesn't get rid of it, but he has a different function of it. And as he pushes it aside, he says, now Jesus is central. You don't need to follow this. Jesus is all you need. And this was so controversial that he had to go to Jerusalem and say that they don't need to do anything to be followers of Jesus. They don't need to keep the Sabbath. They don't need to eat certain food. They don't need to be circumcised. The only things they wanted them to do was abstain from strangled meats and, you know, blood and, you know, sexual immorality. Really? That's the only thing? Food strangled? Yeah, that was a big concern of mine too, right? No, these were areas of worship back at that time. You see, if Paul didn't reimagine what God was doing, we would not be here today because he reimagined things and pushed into that council in Jerusalem and talked to James, the brother of Jesus, and to Peter and said, no, that's not necessary to be a follower of Christ. None of us would be here. But he reimagined what God was doing and it was radical. And it's very different then you get the cross. And the cross is more than just Jesus suffered and died for our sins. The cross is the idea of humiliation and shame. That's what the purpose of the cross was to do. It was to humiliate and shame somebody for days as they would die naked for everyone to see. The God of honor 
I will honor those who honor me. It really seems in places like the Old Testament that God's got this hang-up about, hey, you're going to give me honor or what, right? Don't diss me. I'm God. If you do, I'll wrath you, right? But then you've got Jesus and the cross to the Jews, it's a stumbling block because it was because their God cannot be shamed and humiliated. And to the Greeks, it was ridiculous. Who would want to follow a God who is so weak? And God is now being reimagined. And it's in a way that is, well, Paul says, to those who you know, believe it is the wisdom and power of God. The reimagined wisdom and power of God is now seen on a cross. No one saw that coming. And, and that expanded how they saw everything afterwards. And what about the universe? You know, when they invented the telescope, God had to get a whole lot bigger. Up until that point, God had a little bit of control, but now it's like God has to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is one of the things that I struggle with. If the universe is as vast as I can barely comprehend, that there are just thousands of light years going that way and you still don't reach the end that we are looking at stars that maybe have died, but the light is still coming here. And then it's also so small to the, you know, subatomic level. Does God care about me? Really? How does that work? How do I imagine that? Because it, it, it messes with my head. It does. And it changes the way I interact with this God that I'm trying to reimagine. Does God care if I get a good parking spot at Costco? Should I pray for that? Does he care if my pet runs away, if I get sick or in a car accident? Does he care if I'm financially doing well? What if it's at the expense of someone else? What if my consumption is causing harm to someone else on the other side of the world? How does that all work? And with all that I know today, my understanding, and I am limited in my understanding, but in the things that I know about the vastness of the universe, about the corruption of government and politics, about the, the grasp for wealth and power, about the demeaning of women, about the abuse of children, about the horrors of war, and about people who use war to get power and money, and all these things I know, I ask the question, is it good to believe in God? And, and five-year-old Sam is still learning and speaking to me and says, I think it's good. 
but it looks a lot different. And it's not quite as easy as it used to be, but I still think it's good to believe in God. And I could be really, really wrong in how I reimagine God, but I'm telling you this, I'm not wrong for trying because that is the legacy of faith. And we are all trying to reimagine what God looks like when the family member has cancer, when the elections don't go the way you want them to, when you hear about the tragedies that are happening in the war. We're all trying to reimagine where is God? How does it look now here where I'm at? And then we have to remember that there is someone, some Assyrian somewhere on the other side of the world who is doing the exact same thing from a whole different perspective, saying, I wonder what that looks like here in India or Ukraine or China. And we're probably closer to them when we understand, even though we're miles apart. But we're both trying to reimagine what is this purpose? Who is this God? And so when we come to violence in the scripture, understand the, the framework that is being written in. It's not a declaration, this is how God is. He wants to drown all the people and all the horses. Or in Joshua, he wants you to wipe out everyone in the land, children, women, animals. It's their expression of understanding in the world they live in. And we don't have to hold on to that expression. In fact, they didn't. That's why these other books were written. That's why these other expressions are given. That's why the New Testament is a flip in so many areas. I might be wrong in how I reimagine, but I'm not done. I've got a few years left in me. I've got some reimagining still to do. But I'm not wrong for trying. Neither are you. Let's pray. Father, I know so many of us have been confronted with an ideology of you either accept things as they are and they're that way forever or you are against them. Without the possibility for seeing things different, understanding the world that we live different, understanding who our neighbor is different, understanding who you are reimagining how you are dealing with the humanity that we are living in. And I pray, God, that we would have the freedom to do what we see being done throughout Scripture and not hold on to something that will be detrimental to our growth or understanding of you in the future but to hear the universe speaking still, proclaiming without words, as we learn more, you become more, and we understand more. Help us in our understanding. And I ask this in Jesus' name.
May you hear the declaration of the universe. May you experience the God of creation in all the ways that he speaks and reimagine day by day who he is. God bless you guys. Again, we're going to have a conversation afterwards. So stick around if you want to be a part of that. Thank you guys for joining us online. Take care. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.